Good morning, church. My name is Ellen Freemian, and I'm the wife of Brandon Freemian, who will soon be our lead pastor here. And um, I've been thinking over this last week about how thankful I am to be your sister in Christ, um, for how that you've prayed for this church and prayed for my family and prayed for our pastor and who the Lord would have to bring um, to be that person. And I'm just incredibly humbled and thankful um, for, for how the Lord has led us um, as a body and as um, a family. And we continue to ask for your prayers in this as, as we um, help to grow this body of Christ for his glory. Um, would you pray with me? Oh, holy God, thank you for showing us how to remember you through simple elements of bread and of wine. And Lord, um, I just pray that each one of us would know um, the sacrifice that you have made for us and how you wanted so much to pour out your love for us so that you could be with us. And I pray that we would long to abide in you this morning. And would your word be truth and would it nourish us? And would you send your spirit ahead to soften our hearts so that when that word of God comes, it would be planted in us and grow for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom a hundredfold. And we thank you that we can pray in the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit and in the sovereign grace of the Father. Amen. So I wanted to start this morning with asking all of you a question. Do you have a quirky preference? Now, a quirky preference is something that you have a particular affinity or like for that maybe those that you live with or you're friends with and hang out with, maybe they kind of give you that, that weird look like, really? Um, so this morning, um, right on cue, my almost uh, teenager son gave me permission to share that, he, that, as you know, middle schoolers have a couple of these quirky preferences. He said that on a sandwich, you have to zigzag the sauce and then cut it in half, and that that's how you have to eat the sandwich, or it's just not right. And so he gave me permission to share that example. But maybe for you, it's not a food. It's, it's the music that you listen to or the certain movie that you want to watch when it's your turn to pick for movie night. And everybody else kind of looks at you and you're like, not that one again. Well, I have a quirky preference. I really love sad songs. And, and I, didn't, I love joyful songs too, don't get me wrong. But I, I really love sad songs. And I didn't know that this was a quirky preference until my family pointed this out. So for example, when we're in the car and it's my turn to pick the playlist, you know, I'm in there jamming to my music and a couple songs in, somebody will gently, politely say, um, could we listen to something that's a little bit more, you know, upbeat? And we're like, oh, you don't like this? I'm so sorry, you know, okay. Or I'll be in the kitchen cleaning up, minding my own business, listening to my jams, and somebody will come in and they're like, are you okay? Like, you're a little teary-eyed, like what is going on? And I was like, oh. I'm listening to this beautiful song. Would you like to listen to it too? I'll play it for you right now. And they're like, really, that's okay. Now, um, since I'm a lover of sad songs, I've realized there are three types of said sad songs. 
There are those that are kind of overly sentimental that would make good um, Hallmark movies. And I'm not going to name any names because maybe that's your quirky preference to like those not named sentimental sad songs. There is the second category of the bitter, angry, sad songs. And if you were like me and went to middle school and high school during the 90s, you can remember the angry girl songs of the 90s. And I may or may not be referencing Alanis Morissette in a sermon, which is a little ironic, don't you think? And, but there's the third type of sad songs, and those are the somber, poignant songs that make you feel all of the hurt and emotion of the songwriter, but leave you and point you to hoping in God. And that's the kind of sad song that I particularly love, and I will listen to it several times a week. And the reason why is that sad songs help me to process hurt that I personally experience and that I see in the world around me, and they help me to lay it before the Lord. And it also helps me to confess my sin of being self-reliant because I'm one of those people that wants to get in there and fix it and make it right and over with. Or I'm like, you know, I'm in Christ. Like, what can hurt me? Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words, like, whatever, you know? God is in me. But you know, that's a little self-reliance, too, because we have a God who is acquainted with our grief. So I wanted to give you a couple examples, like, Take me to the king. I don't have much to bring. My heart is torn to pieces, and it's my offering. Or if you like it a little old school. Hold me, Jesus, because I'm shaking like a leaf. You have been king of my glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? That was written by the late Rich Mullins. Yeah, those songs are just so rich. And they help us to realize how much we need Jesus and how we need him to come and meet us in our grief even if we're not quite through it yet. And if you think about it, the Bible is full of sad songs, especially in the Psalms. Now, we oftentimes think of the Psalms as a book of prayers and hymns of praise, but they're also a guide on how to take our raw, sometimes ugly, emotions to the Lord, whether they be just overjoy and the victory of God or where, whether they be the depths of despair. But the Psalms are also a manual of how we should preach to ourselves when we're experiencing the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, so that we don't just take that in for ourselves, but we take it to the Lord. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about a theme of the Psalm, and that is to hunger and thirst for God. But we've also talked about some of the ways that things make us lose our appetite to do just that. We've talked about how spiritual boredom and complacency or just going through the motions of our Christian routine sometimes make us lose that desire, that hunger, that thirst, that want to get in there and sit at the table of the Lord. Last week we talked about how our sin sometimes keeps us walking in darkness rather than walking in the truth and the light of God and longing for his truth and his righteousness to transform our hearts. 
And today we're going to talk about the hard topic of hurt and how hurt sometimes is a barrier to us desiring and longing for God. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 42. Now I know that this is something that may really touch our hearts here as a congregation. I've been at City of Refuge since 2005, and I was reflecting over some of the hard things that we as a church family have faced. Um, we've lost spouses. We've lost young friends to cancer. We've lost little children in unexplained ways. We've had times of trouble in our church leadership that caused a lot of distrust. We've had times um, of struggles and doubts in our faith that caused people to leave this church and even leave and walk away from the faith. And then there's the everything things. We experience physical illness. We experience mental illness. We've all globally lived through a pandemic for the last two and a half years that has affected us in health. It's affected us economically. It's affected us in education. And when we look around, we see people just fighting over things all the time. We see poverty, we see injustice, we see war, and we see striving. And where are we in all of this? And how do we talk to God about it? And I realize that sometimes when we first face a crisis as Christians, it's sometimes like our knee-jerk reaction to get on our knees and pray and ask the Lord to come and save us and to be our rescuer. We long for God. We desire for him in a way that no other time in our lives cause. But sometimes when that rescue doesn't come like we want it to or when we want it to, or we face this challenge of repetitive hardship and repetitive grief, Sometimes we stop crying out for the Lord. We may even grow a little despondent, think that, like, why should I hold on call waiting forever? And does the Lord even care? And then we just kind of grow numb. We may even start singing those bitter songs that leave us hopeless. And before we go on, I wanted to say that the Lord has made us spiritual and physical and emotional beings in his image. And we are going to talk mainly about spiritual hurt that's caused by situations. But I wanted to say that there are also physical and emotional things that need to be addressed and that may need medical care. And we're not talking about those things today, but I wanted to say that if we're facing those things, by all means, we should seek that kind of care too. And I also wanted to ask the elders and the deacons to be available because this is a hard topic and we really just may need to lean on one another after this service today and pray for one another. Or if that's your gifting to pray for others, um, maybe you can meet over here on the side. I know sometimes coming up to the front seems a little intimidating. Um, so I just wanted to say that this is, this is a hard topic today. So let's go now to Psalm 42 to see how it both describes the pain and the hurt that causes us to feel far from God, but also what it instructs us to do when we experience such hurt. Now, if you look in your Bibles or your e-Bibles, e um, there's a little italic print that's at the beginning of this verse, and it says that it is to the choir master 
a maskul of the sons of Korah. So that word maskul, you're like, what is that word? And so it's a transliteration. And transliteration means they take the Hebrew word and they translate it to English as best it would sound if you were saying the word in English. And that is because they don't actually know what this word means. But most people think that this word means that it's a psalm of instruction. And then that we see that it's from the sons of Korah. So if you go back to 1 Chronicles, um, in chapter 6, verse 31, it says that King David appointed the sons of Korah to be singing priests. So they were part of the temple of God, um, the tabernacle and then the temple, and their job as priests was to sing to the people and sing before the Lord. So Psalm 42 was a sad song that was to be regularly sung as part of worship and not just something you pick up during hard times because it's supposed to prepare you for those hard times that are going to come. And we don't know who this character speaking is, whether this person is, is fictional or real, and we actually don't know the sad situation or situations that have brought him to this point of being so downcast. And again, I think that has big application for all of us. We can put ourselves in the psalmist's shoes and we can put our situation here and say, yeah, that applies to me too. And we can receive the instruction that it has to say. So let's read it together. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they are saying to me all day long, where is your God? These things I would remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng, leading them in the procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise and a multitude keeping the festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan, from Hermon and from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, and all your breakers and all your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. And I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation, and my God. So the psalmist begins here with this image of a deer panting. And I, like many of you, are probably an urbanite. And so maybe you're not as familiar with this concept of a deer panting. And so I did what most people do when they don't know stuff these days. I Googled it. And so I came across this blog where uh, hunters could post questions and then they would answer. And so it took me a little bit 
because first I would find a lot of information about how deer actually don't pant for water, they pant to cool off like dogs do. But I came across this one guy who said, you know, I was hunting, I was picking up all my stuff, and I saw this deer, and it was panting. What, what was that? And this other hunter writes to him, he says, Guy, that, that, that's bad, you know, that, guy, that poor deer, he was probably chased around by hunters all day. He was probably chased away from the water because, you know, deer just live near the water. And whenever they see the coast is clear, they'll go down and get a drink. This is what they do all day long. He must have been pursued all day long by the enemy. He's probably near death. And that's what the psalmist says his soul is like. Pursued all day all night, no rest, feeling the threat of the enemy and far from anything that can actually revive him. Maybe you've been there. I imagine a stage where all the lights dim and it's just the spotlight on you and you're hurt. And you sit there and you can't see anything else because it's all black. And you're stuck and you think, Where's my rescue going to come from? I can't see any way out of this very impossible situation. And this was sung as part of regular worship. And then the psalmist calls us here to say, in our hurt, do we really recognize what we really need? When we're hurting, yes, we want our friends to come around us and say that they're sorry and offer condolences, but ultimately, what we really long for and desire is the only thing that can really give us life, and that's the Lord. Because just condolences would be like us talking to this panting, almost dead deer and saying, I'm sorry you don't have any water without giving it something to drink. And I'm guilty of that, of thinking about like all the ways that I can help without really thinking about how can I help this person just go to the Lord and be around them. And yes, we need all of those other helps too, but ultimately we need to recognize in our hurt, we need to long and desire the Lord. But he's not done describing his desperate situation. If we go down to verse two, he says that his tears have been his food day and night. This is a description of depression. His tears have been his food. He's not eating and he's not drinking. And it's day and night. He's not sleeping either. Isn't it crazy how grief sometimes steers us away from the relief of even sleep? So you just have more time to think about how miserable you really are. And this is in the Psalms. And then he says that his grief is not just him, just there by himself. It's put on public display because people are coming and saying to him, mocking him. People are passing by, seeing this grieving man and saying to him, where is your God? Thanks. Isn't it amazing, too, in our grief, how those hurtful words just stick? It's like you can't erase them from your brain because they're so tied to you emotionally. It's like throwing salt on a wound. And I can certainly see myself on both sides of this dialogue both regrettably saying things that I didn't intend to hurt that really hurt somebody when it was just the wrong thing to say in their grief. And also, um, I've received words when I was going through a hard time that weren't quite right. 
it takes a lot of forgiveness and a lot of grace to sometimes get over those hard conversations and miss words in grief, doesn't it? We really need Jesus to come and heal us. But the tipping point of this sad song, whether it will go into bitterness or into hope, depends on how this man answers this question. And how uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, an English doctor who turned to be a pastor, he wrote a book called uh, The Spiritual Depression in the Psalms. And what he says is that the end of this song is determined by what you choose to do. And that is, are you going to sit there and listen to your downcast soul tell you about how downcast is it? Or are you going to start preaching the truth of God to yourself? And what we will see in the rest of this psalm is that the psalmist decides not to continue to listen to his downcast soul, even though he recognizes truthfully where it's at. But he starts preaching hope and salvation to himself. So what we see here, and just is just kind of for orientation, that we see a song of four stanzas or four verses and a refrain that's repeated in verse 5 and 11. And I wanted to start by looking at verse 5 first because I think it gives us a good summary about what this sad song is about. And it says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, my salvation and my God. So first in this refrain, he starts with all these questions. And that describes our grief, right? It's so confusing. We ask ourselves, why did this happen? Why did God let this happen? And why is my experience not aligning with who I know God to be and who I think he wants me to be? And how come I can't get over it if God is really my help in every time of need? But those questions are oftentimes unanswered as they are in this psalm. But instead of sitting there in that question, he changes and he says, put your hope in God. He's pretty blunt with himself. And I think that's what we have to choose to do even though we don't feel like doing it in the midst of our grief. Because times of despair put our faith to the test. Do we really believe verses like from Romans 8, 28, God will work all things and think about all that all for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Lord, does that mean the situation that I'm in right now? Does that mean the hard things that I'm seeing right now? And if though we don't see, but we put our hope in that, we have to preach that to our hearts. And is it true, as the Bible says, that God's perfect love for us can drive out all doubts and fear and despair? And if we believe that, we may not feel it, but we have to preach it to ourselves. And as Paul writes in Romans 8, 25, if we hope for the things that we can already see, that's no hope at all. We must have patience as we wait for the Lord. And that needs godly strength to do. So let's see how this psalm helps us to wait patiently for the Lord to come and meet us in our grief. Let's look first at verse 4. He says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them with the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, the multitudes keeping the festival. 
I think what this verse calls us to remember and to prioritize and value is staying connected to the body of Christ and regularly participating not only in our individual worship, but in communal worship. That's a real soul food. And it says in Psalm 104, we should enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise, giving thanks to him and blessing his name. It's a great little verse to remember when you're getting ready on Sunday morning. And you have to ask yourself, am I going there just because like, I'm supposed to go there and because people expect me to show up or I got to teach today or whatever? Or are you going with glad shouts of joy because you are going to go meet with your forever brothers and sisters in Christ and look around? I mean, this is like a small little taste of what God's kingdom will look like and what our forever will be. And we get to experience that right now. I mean, that's exciting. And then Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says that we don't just come here to like hang out and say howdy and handshake folk. We have to come and consider how we might stir one another up in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some or has a pandemic made you do, but encouraging one another more and more as we see the day of the Lord approaching. And Ephesians 5, 19 says exactly how we should consider stirring up one another. It says we should speak to each other in psalms, like this one even, and in hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord. When we come to church, we are meeting with our forever family and friends. So if you don't like somebody, you better get over it, because forever is a long time. That's what I say. I was like, I gotta, I gotta like everybody. I gotta, I gotta encourage you, my brothers and sisters, because we have a long time to be a family together. We gotta make it work. But if we have that, how strong are we when we're in our grief? If we practice encouraging one another, and that's the dialogue of our church, when we're grieving together, we can lift one another up. And that's important. And this psalmist has that background because he's been celebrating in the house of the Lord with his brothers and sisters already. You know, sometimes when we are truly grieving, all we want is to put the sheets over our head and be in isolation. But what this verse speaks to is that that is not what our soul longs for. We long to be and abide in the community of God with God. And so the first thing we should preach to our grieving souls, even if we don't feel like it and believe it quite yet, is soul, you need to remember to worship God and in community, isolation's no good for you. But you know what? His soul is still downcast. And so he sings his refrain in verse five and he keeps preaching. And he says in verse six, I will remember you from the land of Jordan, of Hermon and Mount Mazar. And I think you can kind of see this picture here, but the picture at the top there, that is Mount Hermon, those snowy peaks, and Mount Mazar is like the little hill that's in the foreground there. So if you stand on Mount Mazar, you can look up and see beautiful Mount Hermon, which is the border between Israel and modern-day Lebanon. And then you're not far from Golian Heights, where this picture was taken from of the waterfall. And that is the headwaters that form the Jordan River as it flows down into the Sea of Galilee. So this man is thinking about this place at the northern end of the Promised Land. 
And so he's thinking about this place, and I wonder if he's thinking about, gosh, this is the land that was given to me and my people from God, not because we did anything to deserve it, but because the Lord's a provider, and he's given me an inheritance. And that just is, and he's a God of promise, and he's a God of provision, and so in my grief, I'm going to remember all that. And so I wonder for you, do you have a place that you can remember where the Lord has provided for you in a way that you didn't deserve or you didn't expect, and he's come through? For me, I was thinking about um, a place like that for me would be Trinity University, where I went to college. Now, college was hard for me, actually, be kind of figuring out what I wanted to do and how to make friends and, and all of these things. And, and I was in InterVarsity, and some people went through some really challenging times as they, they were wrestling with how to make their faith their own. And gosh, the Lord provided for me personally. I saw him provide for my friends. And that's also where I met my husband, Brandon, and, and we were married. And that was a place of promise for me. And I was like, I need to keep that in my, in my readily available storage of God's promise and provision for times when I'm like, gosh, where's your promise, God? Where's your provision, God? He says, think about this beautiful place of creation, of promise and provision you didn't deserve, and know that you're not alone in your grief. And so we preach our second point. Remember those places where the Lord has already fulfilled his promise and provided for you and trust that he will do it again, even though it doesn't seem that way right now. But his soul is still downcast. And so then he goes to verse 7 and he says, Deep calls to deep in the roar of the waterfalls. All the breakers and waves have gone over me. And what I learned about this place that we talked about near Mount um, Mazar and the headwaters of the Jordan is that the headwaters of the Jordan come from the snow melting off those beautiful mountains in the spring. And it's so amazing as the, the waters melt and the Jordan is so rapidly flowing that it makes a waterfall in every spring and it, it's a roar that can be heard from all around that area. And so maybe that's what the psalmist is thinking about here. But importantly, he says to God, this is your waterfall. These are your waves that have gone over me. So maybe you've gone down to the beach at Galveston or been an amazing waterfall like Niagara Falls and, and felt like that rush and you're like, that's awesome, but it's a little intimidating. Like I could just fall off and be swallowed up by this ocean. Like, right? So... There is this sense of God's majesty and his creation, but also it's a little intimidating for us. And the book of Job uses this type of imagery. So the book of Job spends like 37 chapters of Job experiencing pain and wrestling with his friends about his hurt. And it doesn't seem like God has anything to say about this for like 37 chapters. But finally we get to chapter 38 and the Lord is ready to talk with Job. And he says, Job, I wanted to give you some perspective in your grief. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And it seems kind of off topic. But then for the next three chapters, there's this use of all of these creation, and it feels like you're reading a biology textbook or something. And it talks about the mighty lions and the bear and even the leviathan. 
and it talks about how mighty they are. And then it goes, and it's not done yet, and it talks about the, the majesty of lightning and the cliffs and all of these things. And you're like, what's the point of all this? But God's point in showing you this might and this majesty of creation that's certainly stronger and more powerful than, than us little humans is to say, you know what? I'm mightier than all of that. And so the point of verse 7, I think, is that we should preach to our downcast souls that if God is sovereign over all creation, he's sovereign over my current situation. And sometimes we think about the sovereignty of God and we're like, I don't know, that's weird. But it is a comfort in your time of grief and of need because the Lord is steadfast in his promises and if he can command all of those waves and winds and waterfalls, he can have command over your situation too. But his soul is still downcast and he keeps preaching. And he says in verse 8, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. So he changes from the Lord commanding creation to the Lord commanding his steadfast love love. And when we think about this steadfast love, that word steadfast means that God's love for us does not change despite our situation. It is steadfast on the highest of highs during the day, and it is steadfast when we can't see our way through the night. And then he starts singing that as a love song to himself in the night. And I can really remember doing this as a, as a parent of a, of a baby. And I was like up too much at night. And I was like, oh, well, morning just come. And would this kid just go to sleep? And, and then I started thinking about all these times where God speaks to you at night. And this one came up too about like this song within you when you just can't see the way through all this tired and grief and hurt. And now he is ready for a prayer. Do you see how long it takes for this man to get to a place where he actually wants to pray? Sometimes we feel real guilty about that. But this is in Scripture. And it says sometimes we have to start preaching God's truth before we're really kind of ready to talk to him. And that seems kind of bold and even irreverent, doesn't it? But the bold irreverence is only yet to come because he says to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why have I gone around mourning? I'm like this deadly wound in my bones, and these adversaries, these people that I'm not supposed to have, enemies that you were supposed to make fall down, are just taunting me all day long, saying, where are you? So I'm asking the question, too. Where are you, God? This is a lot of bold audacity before the God of the universe that's sovereign over all those waterfalls that can, you know, take you out in a minute. But our sovereign God, if he's that sovereign, he can be sovereign over our raw emotion and grief. I can trust God to take care of my doubts if I will take it to him. And for us on this side of Jesus, we know that God not only knows and cares and commands his steadfast love for us because he's the sovereign Lord of the universe, but because Jesus, as part of the Trinity, came down and lived among us so that he not only knows omnisciently, but he knows experientially what it's like to grieve and hurt and be a man acquainted of sorrows like we are. 
Think about on the cross when Jesus cried out to the Lord and said these same words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just quoting the Psalms. Think about when Jesus cried. He cried over Jerusalem because they didn't recognize him as their Messiah and their Savior. And they mocked him instead, this man that loved him so, them so much. He cried when his friend died. That's the shortest verse in the Bible, that Jesus wept. Somebody died, even though he was about to resurrect him. And then as he was pouring out his love for the whole world, people mocked him. And they said, where's your God? Why doesn't he come down to save you? And those mocking people are as who Jesus died for. That's some steadfast love. As the good song says, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. And what a privilege it is to carry everything. Hurts, doubts, fears, all the hurt and hard things that we've faced. All the things we see. What a privilege it is to carry all of those burdens to the Lord in prayer. Especially in a sad song. And so what this sad song tells us to do is say, downcast soul, you need to trust in that steadfast forever love. And you need to come to him in prayer, even if you have to preach a little bit to get yourself there. You have a Lord and a Savior that knows fully exactly what you're going through and exactly what you need. He came to show you that. But you know what? Unlike the book of Job, where Job's fortunes and his family are restored, this song does not end in such resolution and triumph. It goes back to that refrain, and it says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? I've taught you all these ways to put your hope in God, which I know you're not there yet. But you shall again praise him, even in your grief, because he is your salvation, and he is your God. And he will make a way where there is no way, because that's what he's in the business of doing. Doesn't the scripture say that over and over? How he parted the Red Seas? How he parted the Jordan so they can go in that beautiful promised land? How he came and he died for us to conquer a sin that we could never pay? The Lord is in the business of doing impossible things because of his steadfast love for you. And it's crazy, but sometimes it takes hurt for us to really realize that. Because otherwise we might think that we did it. So when you are hurting and when you are grieving, or maybe you have been hurting and grieving for a long time, what is the song that you are singing to yourself? Is it overly sentimental? Smile, grin, and bear it? Is it bitter and angry? Or is it sad, poignant song like this one that pours out all of the hurt and all of the grief, but says, put your hope in God? And as you put your hope in God, there are tangible things that you can remember. Remember this. This is your forever family that loves you and wants you to know the love of God. 
and that you have to encourage, and we have a responsibility as a family to speak to each other in good times and bad so that we would remember the Lord. Do you remember those places of promise and provision where the Lord has shown that you can trust in him? He's going to come through. may not be on your clock, but it'll be on his, and it'll be on time. Do you remember those places of creation where you know that God is sovereign over this mighty ocean and he's sovereign over my situation too? But then do you take all of that omniscience and glory and drill it down to yourself and say, the Lord has commanded his steadfast love for me. And that's why I have a song to sing, even if it's a sad song. And that's why I have a prayer to pray because I know that Jesus has been there for me and he will be there for me and he has proven that time and again. So I wanted to end with another one of my favorite sad songs. It's more of a modern song by um, Jonathan McReynolds and if you haven't ever heard him, he has a beautiful voice. Um, And I wanted to close with that because my prayer for you, City of Refuge, and for myself, is that we would be sorrowful but always rejoicing. Because when the people out there in the world look in on that, they're like, how can those people go through all that stuff and still put their hope in God? And it's only by the strength of the Lord that we can do that. And that shows that we don't rely upon ourselves and our programs and what we have all put together and how we're like ready on every Sunday morning on time and all these things, but it shows that the Lord is our God and he is our salvation. And that is a witness and something that people desperately need to hear in this hurting and warring world. So let me close with this one. May your struggles keep you near the cross. And may your troubles show that you need God. And may your battles end the way they should. And may your bad days prove that God is good. May your struggles keep you near the cross. And may your troubles show that you need God. And may your battles in the way they should. And may your bad days prove that God is good. And may your whole life prove that God is good. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.